The following sermon, entitled The Mystery Concerning the Gentiles Revealed, the 14th in the series on the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of March 27, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open the sacred scriptures this evening to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we will read the whole of the chapter. The text for this evening sermon will be the first seven verses. Ephesians 3, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me to, to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory, in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Thus far we read God's Word. The text for this evening's sermon is the first six verses. I think I misspoke before. Verses 1-6, through six, we will reread those. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery 
as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the Gospel. The Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, has just finished exclaiming the wonders of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. He has told us how we who were dead sinners have been made alive in Christ Jesus. He has told us how a part of that salvation is that God brings different people groups together. How He took the Jews and the Gentiles who before were at odds with each other. There was that middle wall of partition between them in saving both Jews and Gentiles has torn down that middle wall of partition. He has reconciled all of His people unto Him and therefore He has brought peace between us as His people. And most recently, the Spirit has taught us through Paul that in reconciling us to God and bringing peace amongst all of each other, a part of that is that we are all like living stones used for the building up of the church that is upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Christ Himself is at work building up the house of God and we are the living stones that make up that house. And it's with His heart and mind bursting with these truths that He has just set forth for us that the Apostle Paul is led to pray. That's what he has in his mind when he begins in verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... But then you notice he does not really finish the thought, does he? kind of just stops right there. Because verses 2-7 through don't seem to have anything to do with what he just started to say in verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... And then verse 2... If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, and so on. And we think, how does this all fit together? Well, the key is that verses 2 through 13 are a digression from the main thought. Paul will pick up this thought again in verse 14. Notice how verse 1 begins. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And then in verse 14, he uses the exact same language. Not just the same language in the English, but also in the Greek. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what follows is the prayer that really rises out of everything that he's already taught us in the first two chapters. But before he gets to the prayer, he really interrupts himself. And he has this digression from verses 2 through 13, a necessary digression. 
in which he teaches us about his own apostleship and how these truths were all revealed unto him as an apostle, and now as an apostle, he had then had the calling to make them known unto others. And it's that digression that we want to look at both this week and the Lord willing next week Sunday evening. And we'll split it into two halves. The first half being about Paul's receiving of all this knowledge. And the second half being about his preaching about these mysteries that have been revealed unto him. So tonight we consider Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 6 using as our theme the revelation of the mystery concerning the Gentiles. I think I have it slightly different in the bulletin. Yeah, the bulletin is better. The mystery concerning the Gentiles revealed. Not much of a difference, but it makes the main point the main thing. So the mystery concerning the Gentiles revealed. First, we'll look at the mystery itself. Second, at the revelation of it. And third, the importance of it. Throughout these verses, Paul speaks of a mystery. Verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Again in verse 4, whereby ye read, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. So the main point here is clearly this mystery that the Apostle Paul has in view. And for the sake of clarity, it's worth noting what exactly that mystery is. That is, what the the content of that mystery is. He'll tell us all about that in verse 6. The content is this. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. So the mystery is the fact that the Gentiles are incorporated into the church that they are equal in every respect with the Jews and how this all comes about. But before we get to the content of the mystery, we really need to look at the nature of this mystery first because that's where the Apostle Paul himself begins in verses 3-5. through Verse 3, he says, how that by revelation He made known unto me the mystery. And he's going to tell us about the nature of that. And when he speaks of a mystery, he's not using that term in the same way we often use the term mystery. That is, as some sort of a puzzle or a riddle. That's not the idea of a mystery. Nor is the idea of a mystery that this is some truth that's almost impossible to understand. Almost impossible to articulate. That's not the idea of mystery. Instead, in this context, this term mystery refers to something that was largely concealed, largely hidden from view in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament has been disclosed. It's been unveiled. It's set forth more clearly. And that comes out from the language of the passage. Verse 3, he says, how that by revelation He made known unto me the mystery. And then the King James Version rightly puts the next part in parentheses because it's a, 
a side thought. And then verse 5, he continues this mystery, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. It was hidden from view as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's, it's now been unveiled. It's been opened up so that we can now understand it. That's the idea of the mystery. And again, he's talking about how the Gentiles are going to be incorporated into the church and what that looks like. That was indeed hidden in the Old Testament. It was not clearly made known in the Old Testament what that would look like. That's what the Apostle himself is telling us when he says that which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. But now when we read that, that might give us pause. But what about all those prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Gentiles? What about, for example, the the prophecy in Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God says, and I will give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. What about God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3? And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What about the Psalms that, the Psalm that we sang before the sermon and the Psalm that we're going to sing after the sermon, both of which speak of Salvation going to all the nations. And what about the different historical examples? What about a Rahab? What about a Ruth? How can the Apostle Paul say that this truth of the Gentiles being incorporated into the church was in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men? Well, the key is that Paul is not talking in absolute terms, but relative terms. In other words, there's no denying those prophecies. There's no denying those examples. But the point that's being made is that now in the New Testament, there's a greater clarity. There's a a greater depth of understanding concerning all those things. And that comes out from the language of this passage even. Verse 5, he says, "...which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." So it's not making it a black and white, all or nothing deal, but it's saying it wasn't revealed as it is now with the same clarity, with the same depth that we now have. And it's important that we maintain that over against the error of dispensationalism. The false teaching of dispensationalism teaches, at least this is a part of the overall teaching, that God's saving purpose is really with the Jews, with the nation of Israel. And that the church in the New Testament is really just a parenthesis. That, and the only reason that God has brought salvation to the Gentiles is that when Christ came into this world, the Jews rejected Him. And because the Jews rejected Him to teach those Jews a lesson, He decided, I'll bring salvation to the Gentiles for a time, but then I'm going to come back 
to the Jews because my saving purpose is with the nation of Israel. That's the teaching of dispensationalism. And a part of that is that they would say that the whole idea of the New Testament church, that idea was unknown in the Old Testament. That it was not a part of the the vision of the Old Testament prophets, for example. But over against that teaching, we say, have you read the Old Testament? Have you not read all the passages of Scripture which clearly prophesy of the Gentiles being incorporated into the church? It is there. And so when Paul speaks the way he does in verse 5, he's talking in relative terms, not in absolute terms. God's purpose all along has been to incorporate the Gentiles into His church. That said, we do now have a greater clarity, a greater depth of understanding because that's the positive thing that's being said here in verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. God has made His will more clearly known. And He's done that in part by revealing it to the apostles and prophets. And really the whole second point will be about that. But in addition to that, God has made this known through the outpouring of His Spirit. What a difference the Holy Spirit made for men like Peter and the other apostles. We see that on the day of Pentecost itself, how the Spirit led them into a right understanding concerning these truths. And what is more, this has been revealed in the sense that well, we're living in the, the age of fulfillment. What's going to give the church a, a greater understanding of the place of the Gentiles and how they become a part of the church than watching it happen, seeing it all unfold throughout the history of the New Testament church? So Paul speaks of a mystery here. And he's indicating that we are now able to understand this more clearly, more fully. But now, to get at that clarity and that depth of understanding means we need to get at the content of this mystery. So we've considered the nature of the mystery, and now we look more carefully at the content of it as it's set forth in verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. There are two main things that are a part of the content of this mystery that were there in the Old Testament, but they were veiled, hardly visible, but are now much clearer in the New Testament. First, there is the place, the station of the Gentiles in the church. And second, how exactly they are brought in, how they are incorporated. First, concerning the station, the place of the Gentiles. They are equal with us, with the Jews, in every respect. That is, there's no disparity between the Jews and the Gentiles so that one is superior over against the other. Or to put it still differently, the content of the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellows 
with the Jews in every aspect of salvation. And we say that in light of the language of verse 6. In verse 6, we read that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ. Though I'm always remiss to do this, this is one area where the King James could be strengthened, where the King James could be improved, because it doesn't quite capture the Greek that stands behind this verse. Perhaps a better way to read it would be this way. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and fellow members of the same body and fellow partakers of His promise. Or we could read it this way, that we are co-heirs. That we are co-members of the body. That we are co-partakers of the promise. And we put the, the fellow in front of all three words or the co in front of all three words because that's what we find in the original Greek language. It takes the same prefix that means with together and it appends it in front of three different words. So that the idea is that we are fellows in every aspect of salvation. And now we are going to go through those one by one, but before we do, let's not miss the significance of this for us. Because we are a Gentile congregation. And that's an important reminder for us. Because for the majority of us who grew up in the church, it's really easier for us to relate to the Jews in many ways. We've grown up knowing the sacred Scriptures. And the temptation for us is to begin to adopt a sort of Jewish thinking about Caucasian, Dutch Reformed Americans. That's God's people. But the reality is that we are in fact the Gentiles. We are not that people that God had made His own peculiar nation in the Old Testament, but really this applies to us. We need to bear that in mind as we go through these different things that are part of the content of this mystery. First, of the things that Paul mentions in verse 6 is the fact that we are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. The idea of an heir is someone who has the right to an inheritance. The illustration, the figure is of some lord who has this vast kingdom, all these different possessions, and knowing that one day he will die, he writes out a will. A will whereby everything that's a part of his that belongs to him is going to be divided among others. Well, what this passage is teaching us is that we are fellow heirs with the Jews. That is, whatever God has promised to the Jews in the Old Testament, He's promised that to us. That is, we now have the right to all the blessings of salvation. We have the right to eternal life. We have the, the right to a place to live with our God and to enjoy fellowship with Him. Because we're fellow heirs. Child of God, that means your name is on that will. 
and fellow heirs in the sense that what we are going to receive is equal. It's not as though that the Jews, they're going to get all the good stuff and then the leftovers sort of just fall to us. But what we receive, what we're going to inherit, it's the same. It's equal. That's what it means to be fellow heirs. Secondly, we are also fellow members of the body. The King James puts it, and of the same body. And this is important to add. Paul adds this for good reason because two people can both have their name on a will, but yet not be equals. For example, if this great Lord with this all these possessions had but one son, and instead of giving it all to that son, he decided, I have this servant who I so love this servant. He, he may as well be a son to me. I, I care for him. I'm going to give him a part of the inheritance as well. They're both fellow heirs, but yet they are not yet equals. The one is a son, a member of the family. The other is still a mere servant. And thus, Paul does not leave it at, well, we're fellow heirs. He adds, we're fellow members of the same body. A truth that he will express again in chapter 4, verse 16, when he says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. What he's saying there is, we're all a part of this one body. And the key with a body is that every single part of it is just as important as the next part. And whatever members seem more feeble are all the more necessary to the body as the whole. And what the Apostle Paul by inspiration is doing here is abolishing any sort of view that the Jews are going to be superior and the the Gentiles are going to be inferior. He's doing away with any and all inequality in the church, but he's saying we are equal in every respect because we're co-heirs. We're co-members of the same body. And third, we are also co-partakers or fellow partakers of the promise according to the passage. And partakers of His promise. Of what promise? Well, of the promise and everything that's included in it. That Jehovah would be our God. And we would be His people. The promise of salvation. That the Lamb of God would come into this world to redeem us from the curse of the law, to bring salvation to His people. The promise of God's blessing and the glorious truth that as His people, God is now for us. And whatever He sends along into our lives and along our pathway, that too is for us. It's for our greatest good. That's the promise. And we are fellow partakers. We share in that promise. And that means any promise you find in Scripture, child of God, not just the New Testament ones, but the Old Testament ones as well. It's a promise to you. 
to you personally. Yes, to the church as a whole. But you may read that promise as though your name is written right after or right before as though it's made out to you because we are fellow partakers of the promise. It's not as though there are some promises for Jews and Gentiles alike, but then others, there's this special class that are really only for an elite few, only for the Jews, or only for this upper class of the church of Christ. Not so. But every promise that God makes in the Scriptures is a promise to each one of His people. We are fellow partakers of this promise. And all of this is a part of the mystery that Paul is talking about. This is there in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be brought in, but it's it's not clear. It doesn't stand out. It doesn't leap from the page. But instead, it's made known unto us now. It's been revealed. And this has application for us as a church. It means that as a congregation, as members of a congregation, there's equality among us. There's no disparity among members. And perhaps the application here is indeed with respect to those who, those of us who've grown up in the church, who've spent our entire lives in Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. It's not as though such members are in a class by themselves and the latecomers, the people who've joined from the outside, are somehow down here on another level. But we're all incorporated into the same body. We are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise. Whether we've lived 90 plus years as a member of this congregation, or whether we're one of the most recent additions to the congregation, whether we have a a last name that's clearly Dutch, or our heritage is altogether different. We are in every respect equal as those who are saved in and through Jesus Christ. And that's the truth that comes out much more clearly in the New Testament that's been revealed to us whereas in other ages it was not so well known. That's the first part of this mystery. The second part of it is that It has to do with how the Gentiles are brought in. And to state it simply, it's not by becoming a Jew. Instead, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. And that too is a part of verse 6. Verse 6, we read that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ. And that word in Christ does not just apply to the the partakers of the promise, but really it modifies all three of those so that we are fellow heirs in Christ. Because the reality is that the 
This is Christ's inheritance we're talking about. He's the only begotten Son. He's the one who has the right to it, especially because He's earned it by His saving work. And we are now fellow heirs. We have a right to that inheritance because we are in Christ. We're united to Him. So it's not so much, well, the inheritance is to the Jews and now the the Gentiles have been added to that. But rather, it's the inheritance is to Christ. And both Jews and Gentiles, God's elect people, have both been added to that. We're fellow heirs in Christ. We're fellow members in Christ. Of course. Because it's His body that we're talking about. He is the head and we are all connected to our head. We're members of His body. And we're also fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. Because it's in Christ that all of God's promises are yea and amen. It's in Christ that they find their fulfillment. It's because of Christ that those promises are sure. And all of this points us to the truth that the way we are brought into the church, the way we're incorporated into this, is in and through Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. That comes out likewise in verse 4. Whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery of Christ partially in the sense that He's ultimately the content of this mystery. Because it's in and through Him that Jews and Gentiles are both reconciled unto the Father and thus made one with each other. And this too is a part of the mystery, a part of what was not so clear in the Old Testament, but now is much clearer. We have a greater understanding. And that really comes out when you study the history of the New Testament church and you find that it wasn't simply, well, there wasn't clarity, there was not clarity in the Old Testament, but in the moment we get to Pentecost, then we have clarity because the reality is the New Testament apostolic church had to arrive at clarity on this issue. In other words, it was not clear to all in the church how these Gentiles are going to be incorporated into the body because there were some who had a very wrong understanding. There were the Judaizers. We mentioned them this morning. We come back to them tonight. The Judaizers had no disagreement regarding the fact that the Gentiles would be brought in. No contention there. But according to the Judaizers, the way they are brought in is ultimately by becoming a Jew. If you want to be a part of the church, you must be circumcised. You must keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws and that's how you are brought in. And the reality is that is how it happened in the Old Testament. What do we see with those few historic examples in the Old Testament of people being brought in from the outside? They are circumcised. And they are then required to keep all the other commandments, all the other laws that the Jews were required to keep. And that comes out when we read in the Pentateuch of all these promises that this applies to you and to the stranger in your land. 
These converts from the outside must also keep these Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws. And that's what Judaism continued to think. And that's what the Judaizers, these Christians who are still strongly influenced by their Judaism, also thought you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. And if you're not willing to be circumcised, well then, you're not going to have full privilege in the church. They actually had a, a, a specific name for Jewish proselytes who would, were unwilling to be circumcised. That is, the Judaism itself had this. They were called God-fearers. We will recognize you serve the same God as us. You recognize and confess Jehovah as God. But because you're not willing to be circumcised, we're going to give you a different label and you have different privileges. Lower privileges than the rest of us. And that was the mentality that was found in many in the church. But over against this, a part of the mystery of Christ is not only that the Gentiles would be incorporated in the church and be made equal with the Jews in every respect, but the second part is that this would happen by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it was not by becoming a Jew that the Gentiles became fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise. They did not have to be circumcised. They did not have to keep the Old Testament ceremonial laws, but we have all these things by faith in Christ. Apart from works. And this is true of both Jews and Gentiles. And yes, this is there in the Old Testament. So that when Paul writes what he does in Galatians chapter 3, when he's addressing the heir of the Judaizers, he can point back to Abraham and say, look, he had this promise decades before he was ever circumcised. Decades before you could ever call him a Jew even. God told him he was righteous by faith. It's there in the Old Testament. but the clarity comes in the new. That's the mystery that Paul has in view here. And we know all this because it has been revealed unto us. So we've talked about the mystery. We need to talk about the revelation of this mystery. So we mentioned earlier, this has been revealed especially to the Apostle Paul. That's what he says in verse 3. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. We've talked about the mystery, now we talk about the revelation. That word revelation refers to the uncovering of something, it's talking about removing the veil from something. And Paul uses it to refer to the direct revelation that he received from Christ, that special revelation that was a part of him being an apostle he tells us about that a revelation in other passages of scripture for example when he was talking to king agrippa recounting his conversion he tells how christ said to paul but rise and stand upon thy feet for i have appeared unto thee for this purpose to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which 
thou hast seen and of those which and of those things in which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in Me. Christ revealed that the Gentiles would be incorporated into the church. That, it would be, that they would have this inheritance and that this would be by faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, But I certify you, brethren, that the Gospel which was preached of Me is not after man, for... I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that it's not as though one of the other apostles taught this to him. It's not as though he came up with this himself, or even that he came up with it by some in-depth study of the Old Testament Scriptures that he studied them long enough and hard enough that he, he finally came to see all this. That's not how this was made known unto Him. That's not how it was revealed unto Him. But instead, Christ revealed it to Him directly. Christ spoke to Him. Christ who is not just the content of this mystery, but really the source of this mystery. Christ who is our chief prophet. He's the one who taught Paul. He gave him these visions. He's the one who opened up the Scriptures for the Apostle Paul and pointed him to these passages that are so important. And now Christ did this for a purpose. So that the Apostle Paul might be a steward of the grace of God and this mystery. And we say that in light of verse 2. Verse 2 we read, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word. And that word dispensation has the idea of stewardship. Paul was made a steward of the grace of God. A steward being what Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Potiphar entrusted all of his possessions to Joseph. And Joseph was to use all of them in the service of his master Potiphar. Well, the Apostle Paul was made a steward of the grace of God. He, he received it and now he's to use it. And that applies to this mystery as well. It's not as though Christ revealed all of this to the Apostle Paul just because he wanted Paul to know it. But he had a far more important purpose. The purpose is that he would reveal it to Paul so that Paul then could reveal it unto others so that he could preach all this on all of his missionary journeys so he could write it down and others could read about it. And that's really what we will focus on next time in the series when we come to verses 7 and following where Paul says, whereof I was made a minister. And he talks about his calling to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul was a steward. And his ministry really bore the evidence that he had received this revelation. 
That's what Paul is getting at when he says what he does in that parenthetical statement. Verse 3, we read how that by revelation He made known unto me the mystery. And then as a sort of side note, he says, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He begins by saying, as I wrote afore in a few words. He's talking about what he's already written in this epistle. He's referring back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where he mentioned this mystery and how all things would be brought together in Christ. He's referring back to what he's just talked about in chapter 2, verses 11 following, how Jews and Gentiles would all be brought together to form the house of our God. So he's already mentioned it. And now he adds, when you read those things, you will see, it will become apparent, my knowledge in the revelation of Christ. Now, he's not boasting here. He's not saying, look at my insights. Look at all my learning and understanding. That's not the point. Because he says, this has been given to me. He says that in verse 2, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. And this has been revealed to me. The only reason I know this is because Christ, who is the source of this mystery, has disclosed this all to me. And the very fact that I have these insights is proof of that. I, I could never come up with this. It's from Him. So that what Paul is saying here is that his preaching, his writings, his inspired writings themselves were evidence that all this had been revealed to him. Now what does any of this mean for us? There are two points of relevance for us. Two points of significance. The first is a reminder of the tremendous privilege that we have and that we do have the completed canon of Scripture. Because Christ's purpose in revealing this to Paul was not just that He would preach it, but that He would write it down. So that it might be passed on from generation to generation to generation so that we might have this revelation. So that this mystery might be made known unto us. And that's no small thing. We might be tempted to think, well, if only I could have that direct revelation like the Apostle Paul. If only God would speak to me. If only Christ would give me a vision. That would be something. But the reality is, we have that which is far better. It's not the case that God stopped revealing things directly, that He stopped giving this special revelation because He got tired of it, or because the people living in that day were somehow better and more important. But instead, He stopped the special revelation because He's told us everything He needed to tell us. 
And now we have it written down. We can come back to it again and again and again. We do not have to wait for this vision to come from God. We do not have to wait for Him to to speak to us. But we can take that revelation in hand. Read it anytime we like. And all of this is to say, this is a treasure. God's Word is. And we should esteem it as such. That first of all is the application in this second point. Secondly, there is in this passage of Scripture a reminder of the great lengths that God goes to in order to save His people. And that comes out when we really step back and look at this passage as a whole and how it ties back to the whole history of the church at Ephesus. Have you ever considered what trouble God was willing to go through to save His elect but yet unconverted people at Ephesus? Have you ever considered that it required, involved stopping this blaspheming injurious persecutor of the church in his tracks. As he was walking on the road to Damascus. And he worked in this man a wonder of grace. Made him one of his own. But not only did he convert this Saul of Tarsus, he then equipped this Saul of Tarsus. He set him aside as apostle. He, he revealed all these truths to him. He, he spoke to him. He gave him all these visions so that the Apostle Paul would have all this knowledge and understanding. And not only did Christ do that for the sake of the Ephesians, but think of all the preserving work of Christ to keep Paul safe from all the danger, from all the, the trouble. Because of the Apostle Paul dies, who's going to take the Gospel to the saints at Ephesus. And thus Christ preserves him all along the way. And then Christ directs this man's footsteps to walk into the city of Ephesus to bring the Gospel to this pagan, idolatrous people that was in utter spiritual darkness. To bring the light of the Gospel to that land. And that, so that through the preaching, the elect in Ephesus might be brought to faith in Christ. In congregation, that is the most abbreviated, truncated form of an explanation of all the trouble God was willing to go through in order to save His people. And He does the same for us. Have you ever considered what great lengths God has gone to to save you, child of God? It's worth meditating upon that at times. Even if we grew up in the church. Think about all of His work 
to establish a church here. To preserve a congregation here. Think about His work in the lives of your parents and perhaps your grandparents and perhaps your great-grandparents. And how He worked in the hearts of each and every one of them to teach their children in the ways in the fear and knowledge of the Lord so that you would grow up hearing the truths of Scripture from the time you were a little child. Think of all the different people that He's brought into your life. All the different instruments in His hands. Whether it was your parents, whether it was your teachers, whether it was all the different pastors you've had all throughout your life. And how all of this is God's work to save His people in Redlands, California. What great lengths He's willing to go to. All the trouble He's willing to go through for your salvation and for mine. That's what comes out when we tie this passage back to the historical context. And it's this that will make us truly thankful that this mystery has been revealed to us. That we've been given this clarity, this depth of understanding regarding the sacred Scriptures and all the the truths that are contained in them. It's been revealed to us. And it's important, it's necessary that we see just how important this all is. Because we need to see the importance of this mystery, the importance of this revelation of God does indeed come out in this passage. And the importance comes out in that Paul was willing to be a prisoner for the sake of this mystery of Christ. That's verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Paul is writing this epistle from prison. Almost certainly, he is talking about his first imprisonment in Rome when he was under house arrest. Noteworthy, he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he's the prisoner of Jesus Christ in the sense that, well, it was for the sake of Jesus Christ that he had been put in prison. Ultimately, yes, he's a a prisoner of Caesar. But the reality is that he was put into prison because of his commitment to the Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a part of what it means that he's a prisoner of Christ. But the other part is that He's still under the dominion. He's still under the control. He's still in the hand of Jesus Christ. I'm the prisoner of Christ. In other words, the Apostle Paul was not like some prisoner of war who when he's captured is now no longer under the control, the government of the nation that he belongs to. But now he's under the dominion, under the control. He's at the mercy of his captors, who's ever taken hold of him. But that's not the case with the Apostle Paul. He still belongs to Jesus Christ, whether he's in bonds or whether he's free. 
Christ was still holding him in his hand, even as he sat there in Rome. That's what it means that he was a prisoner of Christ. Very well then, but now, what does this have to do with the mystery? Why does Paul digress? Why does he go from mentioning his imprisonment and rather than going right into his prayer, why does he first interject this? Well, it's because the other part of the reason that he was in prison was for the Gentiles. That's verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. Paul was put in prison for their sake. And that's true exactly because he was preaching what he was. Because he was preaching that not only would the Gentiles be incorporated into the church, they'd be equal with the Jews in every respect. And that they would become members of the church not by becoming a Jew, not by being circumcised, not by keeping the ceremonial laws, but by faith in Christ alone. That's why he's in prison. Remember that. Remember what happened to him in Jerusalem. It was not that he was causing all kinds of trouble and the, the, the Romans decided we've got to take care of this Paul. It's not because he broke some civil law but it was because of the Jews. It was because of their hatred for the Gospel that He preached. Specifically the Gospel that we've been describing this whole time. That's why they attacked Him. That's why they started the uproar that day in the temple. And Paul really could say that it was for the sake of the Gentiles that all of this happened. Because do you remember what the Jews alleged specifically about why this Paul needed to be put to death or imprisoned? Do you remember whom they said Paul brought into the inner court only for the Jews? It was Trophimus and Ephesian. It was because Paul was seen in Jerusalem walking side by side with a saint from Ephesus. And the Jews hated it. He really could say, I'm a prisoner for you Gentiles. And what all this has to teach us is the importance of this great Gospel. Paul's willing to be put in prison for this. He's willing to endure all that he has to go through because he's not going to back down. He's not going to cave to all of the pressure. Because the reality is if he wants to get out of prison, all he has to do is start teaching, yes, the Gentiles must become Jews. And if they don't, then there's no equality here. Then we need to have different levels in the church. If he starts teaching that, there's not going to be any more persecution for him. But he refuses to teach that. 
Because he recognized that if he does, he overthrows the very heart of the Gospel justification by faith alone. And that truth is so important to him. He's willing to be a prisoner for the sake of it. Is it that important to you, child of God? Is it that important to me? Is the mystery of Christ the most absorbing interest in our lives tonight? Is this the most thrilling thing in the world to you? Is it the center of your life? Is this what is uppermost in your heart? So much so that you are willing to go to prison for it. The reason this digression is included, the reason Paul mentions his imprisonment is to impress upon us the importance of it. So that when we see other saints suffering for the sake of gospel, for the sake of the gospel, our faith does not shake or waver. So that we're not afraid ourselves of one day enduring persecution. But rather, that understanding how glorious this mystery really is, we ourselves are made willing to face such trials and tribulations for the sake of the Gospel so that if need be, we are even willing to be put in prison for it. May God work in our hearts that it is that important to us. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for the knowledge and understanding that Thou hast given to us. And we pray that Thou wilt continue to build us up in our faith. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.